listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. My name is Ted Duncan. It's a real joy for my wife, Lindsay, and I to be here with you uh, this morning. I'm going to be uh, teaching out of the book of Revelation today. And uh, so ushers are coming up and down the aisle with copies of the Bible. And so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand or holler at them and they can put one into your uh, hands. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, this is our gift uh, to you to, to read and have your life transformed by it. Uh, Lindsay and I love Kelowna. I'm not sure if there's like an associate pastor position coming available or something like that, but, but please notify us as soon as possible. Uh, we've always loved Melvin and Charlotte, but every time we've uh, hung out with them, it's always been uh, in Ontario. And so we know we love them and uh, we love this city and we've only been to this church now for about 30 minutes, but we really like it. Okay. So any way that you can get us to be here permanently would be terrific. Okay. And so if we could work together on that, I'd really appreciate it. But seriously, it's been so great to be here. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. Opportunity. It's been so uh, exciting over a number of years to hear the different reports about what God's doing uh, at Harvest Kelowna and uh, so thankful to actually get to see it uh, up close. On his 80th birthday, Winston Churchill was given uh, a present. He was an amateur artist himself, and so the members of Parliament and the House of Lords all chipped in and they hired a world-renowned artist to paint a portrait of the prime minister. It seems sort of like the perfect gift. I mean, a, a painting for a painter. And um, the, the plan was that the painting would actually have a place of prominence in the Churchill home because it was a gift to him. But then after he passed away, the idea was that the painting would be um, hung in the House of Commons for years and, and years and years. Well, the painting is not being hung there. The painting never made it back from Churchill's house because Churchill destroyed it. This, this thoughtful, expensive, beautiful, what was, what was, had initially been called when it was originally unveiled, a, a, a modern day masterpiece, Churchill took it home and destroyed it. He hated the painting. He didn't hate the painting because he thought he could have done a better job. He didn't hate the painting because he thought it was bad art. To, to, to summarize or paraphrase his own, his, his own response to the painting was, it was simply too accurate. You see, historically, the, 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 the paintings of the prime ministers that were, that were on display in Parliament, they were sort of wearing these princely robes and feathered hats, and it was all very regal, and, 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 and all of the sort of warts and scars were glossed over. It was sort of this idealistic uh, picture of the national leader, the leader of the government. But the picture that Graham Sutherland painted of Churchill was very realistic. It was just him sitting in a chair in a, in a suit and, and, and all, it, was, it, was, it looked just like Winston Churchill, but it was the fact that it looked just like Winston Churchill was the reason why Winston Churchill didn't like it. You see, we all have something that sociologists call the illusory self. And no matter what the mirror might tell us, we have this picture of what we think we look like. 
And it goes beyond just our physical appearance. We have this concept of ourselves of this is who I am. No matter what other people tell us, no matter what our experience tells us, we tend to think a certain way about ourselves. And we get uncomfortable when we hear voices telling us something to the contrary. Or when someone holds up the mirror to see us as we truly are. Now, the book of Revelation, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, the word revelation means unveiling. It means to make something clear. And the one who's making things clear is Jesus. And some of you think, well, I don't think there's a whole lot that's clear about the book of Revelation. And yeah, we could debate a, a whole lot about some of the symbolism and all of that. But I'll tell you one thing. When Jesus shows up, that's crystal clear in the book of Revelation. When he shows up in chapter 1, and all of his glory and the splendor, his face shining like the sun and robes like white. That, that's pretty clear, isn't it? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the book of Revelation is not just written to reveal how the end is supposed to work out so we can make our little, our little charts of the end times. The book of Revelation is not merely there to reveal who Jesus is. You see, the book of Revelation also helps us see ourselves. But the truth is, we don't always like what we're going to hear. The, the way the Bible talks about us, the way that it speaks to us, what it reveals about us is sometimes difficult to hear. So in Revelation 1, Jesus is revealed in all of his splendor and glory. And then... And you get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, he has these messages, these letters that he wants sent to seven different churches in what is present day a Turkey. These were all uh, cities that were established that had churches planted uh, in them. And there was a specific message that was supposed to be spoken, a revelation that was to reveal how these churches were actually doing. And... And if you needed to use Google Maps to try to get to one of these places, you, you could do that and it could walk you through it. So, <laughs> that's okay. I've, it's happened to me before. So, I'd just rather you than me because I'm up here and then that would be a nightmare. So, anyway, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to a city, a church that was planted in a city called Laodicea. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And we're going to look through the, the lens of Jesus' letter to Laodicea and see what it has to say about us. Because we believe that God's word is living and active. It's not just simply that God has spoken, but that God is speaking. And yes, he spoke directly to the church at Laodicea 2,000 years ago. But... Because he spoke by the Holy Spirit through the living and active word, it reverberates beyond all of the thousands of years. It reverberates across geography. And so God has spoken to the church of Laodicea and is speaking to us here in beautiful Kelowna, B.C. I want to give you a couple of initial uh, Wikipedia facts about Laodicea before we get uh, going. First of all, it was a very wealthy city. It was at the center of a trade route and there were a number of banks. And, and, and uh, um, it was, 
There's all kinds of commercial activity and wealth in this place. So much so that in uh, 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake in the area. And a number of the cities uh, were just completely demolished. And so the Roman government... uh, provided money, tax money, to to help rebuild the cities. And Laodicea just said, no thanks. We're just going to rebuild the whole thing on our own. That's how wealthy that federal funding was being offered to them to rebuild their city. And they said, no thanks. They were very, very wealthy. Secondly, they also had a, a medical school there. And uh, there's a, that's, that's not a baby bottle, that's a eye drops. And so they created something called Phrygian powder, which was sort of like the original visine. And, and, and it was something that was used to cure and help ailments with people's vision. So, so um, Laodicea was really sort of the, 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 the birthplace of ophthalmology, uh, of optometry, of caring for people's eyes. So they were very, very uh, intelligent. It was sort of this, this medical uh, research hub. Also, they had developed this way of breeding their sheep to grow this jet black wool that you couldn't find anywhere else. And so they also had this massive textile industry. And so those are just three things for you to to know and understand about the place of Laodicea. So Jesus begins in verse 14, it says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, All of the seven letters, the the letter written to Laodicea is the seventh. All of them follow a similar structure. It begins with Jesus kind of introducing himself. He calls himself the amen. Uh, Amen is something that Christians normally say. You know, if if someone's uh, preaching something and you agree, you'd say amen. Or at the end of your prayer, you would say amen. Amen simply means yes. It's It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word for Yes, and so you could go anywhere in the world in a Christian church and you might not not understand any word that's spoken at all, but you'll understand the word amen. Because amen is not translated, it's transliterated, and no matter where you go. And so Jesus calls himself, he says, I am the yes, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. Uh, Jesus is, he is faithful and he, he always tells the truth. You can count on him to speak the truth in our lives. Then it says that he's the beginning of God's creation. Now your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness might, might take you to this verse and say, well, Jesus, he's, he was created by God the Father. But, but that, that word beginning is not saying that he's part of the creation. The, the Greek word there is arche. It's where we get the word architect from. And so an architect built this theater, but that doesn't mean the architect is part of the theater. He's not like in the wall. He's not holding up one of the beams. No, he, he was the beginning of the building. The, the building began when he drew it out on his board. And, and so Jesus is the beginning of creation. It was by the word of God, the son of God, Jesus Christ, that, that, that God spoke the universe into existence. He's the beginning of God's creation. And then he says, he's, and then he speaks to the church at Laodicea here in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were hot or, sorry, were that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, 
I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. As we go through this letter today, we're going to see three things that Jesus wants us to see clearly. Here's the first one. Jesus wants us to see that we are proud. Jesus wants us to see that we are proud. He, he, he mentions in verse 15 this idea of being hot or cold or lukewarm. That there's sort of these three categories. And oftentimes when this verse is being taught, there's this idea that someone who is hot, they are a fired up believer in Jesus Christ. And someone who is cold is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. There's someone who doesn't even believe in God. They're not a Christian. They're unsaved. And then the lukewarm person is someone who is a Christian, but they're not fired up. Now, if you read these verses, you, you could understand where that might come from, but there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no connection between those concepts and the idea of being lukewarm, hot, or cold. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. And he says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, the drinking habits in Laodicea and the ancient uh, Near East were very similar to our drinking habits. If you're in Kelowna in December and it's a brisk, freezing cold morning, you want a double-double from Tim Hortons. Yesterday, walking around downtown Kelowna or walking up Knox Mountain, I did not want a double-double. I wanted an ice cap. But if, if in the middle of December, you have a double-double in your hand and you go over to the arena and you put, you put the coffee on the bench and then you go skating with your family for a couple of hours and then come back to your coffee, you don't want it anymore because it's lukewarm. Or if someone hands you an ice cap and then you go and cut your lawn for 45 minutes and then the ice cap melts into, it doesn't really, ice caps don't really melt, do they? They just sort of ooze into something different. It's, it's, a, little bit, it's a little bit odd. But no one wants a lukewarm ice cap. No one wants a lukewarm double-double. It's, it's useless, isn't it? You see, the idea isn't that hot is good and cold is bad and lukewarm is somehow even worse. No, the idea is that hot is useful and cold is useful, but lukewarm is not. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. And he's speaking actually uh, uh, about something that everyone in Laodicea understood. I don't know if you ever travel to another city and you really like it, but you can't drink the water. Maybe there's like sulfur in the water or more minerals in the water and you're just, you just can't get used to the way that the water smells or the way that it tastes. Well, let me just show you this simple map of um, where Laodicea was situated. There were sort of three cities. This is the Lycus River. And so here's Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae. So picture, uh, picture Vernon and Penticton, okay, around Cologne, except these were only like six miles north, ten miles east. These all, they, were, they were all really close uh, together. Now, Hierapolis to the north, they had hot springs like Banff. 
And so the, the water bubbled out hot. It was very useful. People would bathe in it. People would create medicine from it. All of that sort of thing. So they had useful, hot, bubbling water to the north in Hierapolis. And then Colossae, they, they, it was a mountainous region. So they had cold, refreshing uh, sources of water flowing down from the mountains. But Laodicea didn't have a source of water at all. So in Hierapolis, it's hot. In Colossae, it's cold. In Laodicea, they didn't have any water. They had to have their water brought in by an aqueduct like, like this. And so they had these, can we look at the next, the next picture here? The, the, the sort of stone, there we go. So this, for miles and miles, water was piped into Laodicea. And whether it was hot or whether it was cold, by the time it went through miles of that pipe, it was lukewarm. And it was also filled with all kinds of like extra minerals and additives because it was flowing through that pipe for so long. And so he's speaking, to, he's speaking about something that, that these people actually understand, that no one likes to drink Laodicean water. But Laodicea had lots that they were, that they took their pride in. Verse 16, or sorry, verse 17, it says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You see, the problem with the church at Laodicea was pride. The problem was them thinking that they didn't need Jesus. It wasn't a matter of Jesus saying, oh, I want hot Christians or cold non-Christians, I don't, or I don't want lukewarm. Would that make sense in the heart of God? Would that make sense to say to one of his children, I would prefer that you were unsaved? Would you ever hear God say that? That doesn't make sense, does it? This concept of a lukewarm Christian and God not wanting them, that, 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 that's contrary to what we understand God's heart being in the Bible. What's being described here is someone who is arrogant, someone who was useful, they were hot or they were cold, but now they are giving into pride. I don't know a, a whole lot about science, but I, I am relatively familiar with this idea of the second law of thermodynamics, this idea that everything is deteriorating. And something that is cold, unless you have something that is keeping it cold, it will eventually get warmer, won't it? And something that is hot, unless you have it on an element or something that is keeping it hot, it will eventually get cold. And this is what we need to realize about ourselves is that all of us have a tendency to drift towards pride. All of us have a tendency to start to look around at what God's doing at our church. Man, this, this is amazing. And, and, and to start to look around at what's happening in our family. Or to, to look around at what's happening in our workplaces. And start to think, I'm doing really, really well getting our eyes off of our Savior, getting our eyes onto ourselves. You see, it's that prideful attitude. It's pride that makes Jesus puke. Jesus wants to spit us out of his mouth when we start to think that we don't need him, when we start to say things that I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. How about John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And these people in Laodicea were so filled with pride, they're thinking that, well, I, I don't really need anything. I'm rich. I've prospered. If there's a problem, our, our money, our wisdom, our intelligence will be able to solve this. God must be so glad that there's a church in the city of Laodicea because we got it figured out over here. And Jesus responds to them, responds to their arrogance and to their pride by saying that they're lukewarm. And he wants to spit them out of his mouth. So loved ones, the, the first step, if we're going to see ourselves clearly, the first step is to admit and to recognize that each and every one of us has a tendency to drift towards pride. And unless we're proactively keeping ourselves cold or keeping ourselves hot, it's bound to happen. So how do we keep ourselves cold? How do we keep ourselves hot? How do we fight against this sense of pride? If you keep reading in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Then he says, not realizing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the second thing we need to understand if we're going to see ourselves clearly. Not only are we proud, but also that we're blind. A point two in today's message is that, is that I am blind. You see, the, our biggest danger is pride. Our, 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 the, the thing that cuts us off from our relationship with God, the thing, the thing that hinders the work of the Spirit in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our city, is pride. That's the thing that always gets in the way, and yet that is the thing that we are so blind to. Jesus says it right there in verse 17, not realizing. You guys, you guys don't see it. You need to be able to, we're blind to our own pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He says, there's, there's one vice of which no, one, no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. We're blind to it. It's Revelation 3.17. We don't realize it. The more we, sorry, and the more, notice this, the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. We've got to admit and we've got to recognize, first of all, that I'm proud. Second of all, that I'm not even capable myself to see my own pride. We need people to help us to see it. We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God. We need the people of God because we simply don't see our own pride. So Jesus gives them this heads up. He says that you, are, that you are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind, and naked. Now remember these things about the city of Laodicea, that they were wealthy and, um, and had this eye drop thing and they had this textile industry. And then Jesus said to them in verse 17, he goes right at them. 
He goes right at their water source. He says that they're lukewarm. And then he goes right at the very things they were taking pride in. You are poor. You are blind. And you are naked. Now sometimes in the Christian life, we get really into verses like verse 17. Where maybe we're living a life of pride for so long and then we, we suddenly realize it. And then we start to always be focusing on verses like, like verses in, in Revelation 3.17. That I'm, I'm wretched and I'm pitiable and I'm poor and I'm blind and I'm naked and my heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And I'm a, I'm a worm. And I'm a horrible sinner. And this is how I need to talk about myself. And I need to sort of walk with my shoulders shrugged. Well, listen, you need to understand this. Listen, you are blind to your own pride. And Jesus, because he loves you, will open your eyes to see it. But listen, he doesn't want you to stay in verse 17. If he wanted you to stay in verse 17, the letter would have ended. But the letter keeps going. And yes, Jesus wants us to see that we're wretched, wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked. But Jesus also wants us to read the next verse. As soon as he makes us know how sinful we are, look at what he says. He says, get your eyes off yourself, get them on me. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So follow this. He goes from saying you're poor, blind, and naked and then he addresses all three categories again. Buy from me gold and salve for your eyes and white garments to cover your nakedness. Jesus wants us to get our, he wants us to see our pride but as soon as we see it, we're not supposed to focus on how sinful and horrible we are all the time. We got to get our eyes off ourselves because if our eyes are on ourselves, that's just another form of pride. You're still just only talking about yourself. Before you were talking about how great you are, now you're talking about how horrible you are. What Jesus wants you to do is stop talking about yourself. Stop focusing on yourself and focus on me. So Jesus says, buy from me. Gold, buy from me the salve for your eyes. I want to clothe you in white garments. We've got to have a healthy amount of self-suspicion in our lives. We've got to have healthy relationships. I hope if you belong to Harvest Kelowna that you're involved in these life-giving small group Bible studies that happen in our churches where, where we can invite people to speak truth because we're blind to our pride. I hope you're inviting your spouse. I hope you're inviting your parents. I hope you're inviting your children to speak lovingly and patiently and kindly to expose the pride in our lives that we're so prone to give into. But it always has to be said the way that Jesus said it. When we say that someone struggles with pride, don't just, don't just leave them to go off on themselves and feel horrible. Then point them to the gospel. Point them to Jesus. Bring them to him. Just as Jesus said, come to me. So Jesus gives us this invitation to make a purchase. How can we 
buy this gold that's refined with fire? How can we acquire this salve? How can, how can we clothe ourselves in white garments? Well, we can buy these things because Jesus has already paid the price. You see, even though we are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind, and naked, Jesus is the one who became wretched and pitiable. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And even though we are blind and naked, it was Jesus who was blindfolded when the soldiers hit him and said, prophesy who hit you. And it was Jesus who was stripped naked only to have a purple robe put on him so that he would be mocked as his garments were gambled for at the foot of the cross. You see, we will never actually be able to combat pride in our lives until we realize what Jesus went through to pay the price for our sinful pride. That he, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took on our wretchedness. He took on our nakedness. He took on our poverty so that we could be clothed in his white garments. So that we could see clearly with his salve. So that we could have the gold refined by fire. That is the only, listen, you can talk a lot about pride and humility and we need to be more humble. Listen, you'll never be humble until you get your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only at the cross where we're cut down to size. It's only at the cross when we see our sin as it truly is and we see our Savior as it truly is. So Jesus helps me to see that I'm proud, that I'm blind. And then lastly, as we look at the cross, Jesus helps us see that I am loved. That I am loved. Verse 19, he says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is the amazing thing about our Savior is that even when we're arrogant, even when we're proud, even when our pride is so offensive to him that he wants to spit us out of his mouth, he still loves us. He still wants us to walk with him. He says, those whom I love, he says, I reprove and I discipline. Now, discipline is a word that we're relatively familiar with. We use it to describe our own uh, healthy habits that we include in our lives. We use it to describe the way that we teach and admonish and instruct our children, both in responding to bad behavior and encouraging and clarifying what good behavior is. We're, we're pretty familiar with the word discipline. The word reprove, we don't use very often. This is what reprove means. To, to reprove someone means to make them aware of some, to make them aware that they were doing something wrong when they were blind to it. It's, it's warning someone when they're about to walk down the street and there's a bus coming at 60 kilometers an hour to yell out to them and then they, they're reproved. They were walking in a destructive path and someone said something, someone reproved them and now they know that they shouldn't go that way any further. Jesus reproves us in our pride because we're blind to it and he disciplines us and then he says, so be zealous and repent. 
Be zealous in repentance. The word repent simply means to turn. It means that you were heading in this direction. Someone reproved you. And now you have turned and you're heading in the complete opposite direction. And we're supposed to be zealous in our repentant, in our repentance. But here's the thing, as uh, Pastor Kai Ballantyne in Harvest Muskoka describes, there, there, are, there are some things that are easy to turn around, some things that aren't. I mean, if you're on Bernard Street in a bicycle and you want to turn around, it's not that hard, is it? But if you're on Bernard Street and an 18-wheeler truck and you want to turn around, it's not that easy. In fact, you probably can't do it yourself. You're probably going to need someone to sort of direct you about where you should be going and turning. You're probably going to have to stop traffic. Some things we repent of, it's quite easy. We can just do it ourselves. Oh, I'm repenting. There we go. Others of us, repentance is like, I'm repenting. It's happening anytime now. But listen, the question is not how fast are you in your repentance, how easy it is, how zealous are you in doing it? Some of us here today walked into church and there's a sin in your life. It's rooted in pride because just about every sin is rooted in pride. And it's as big as an 18-wheeler. And hardly anyone knows about it. And it's time for you to humble yourself. And it might have to stop traffic. And you're definitely going to need someone to give you some direction on how to back this thing up and turn it around. But it has to happen. Because Jesus loves you. And he reproves you. And he wants to discipline you. So be zealous and repent. I remember a time in my life, three or four years ago, where there were a number of sins that I knew that I was struggling with. But by the grace of God and by the mercy of God, over the course of several days, which led into several weeks, God just kept revealing things, kept peeling back layers, showing more and more of how deep-rooted these sins were in my life. And traffic stopped. And it affected a lot of people, and I needed people to help me back the thing up and to get it turned around. And it was noisy. I mean, I wanted to do it privately, but you know what it's like. Beep, beep, beep. Like, everyone knows it's happening. I want to tell you, those were simultaneously the worst and the best days of my life. I had never felt worse in my life, but I had never felt more loved in my life. I, I felt the mercy, the grace, the love of God speaking to me saying, Ted, you are headed this way and you can't go that way any longer. I love you too much to let you continue behaving this way. It's time to back it up. It's time to turn it around. And so I'm not, I'm not here speaking to you as someone who, you know, uh, only theoretically understands the power of these verses. No, I have lived them. I am living them. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Turning away from our sin. Will you do it today? Will you hear his voice speaking to you today? Listen, we don't repent so that he will love us. We repent because he loves us. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. So even if it is a slow repent, repent with zeal, with passion, whatever it takes. Then in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Normally this verse is used in sort of evangelistic context that the unbeliever is, Jesus is knocking on the unbeliever's heart. This is it's written to a church. It's written to a bunch of Christians. We can, be, we can be going through church at Harvest Bible Chapel Kelowna or Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton or whatever church. We can be going through church and be so filled with pride that Jesus is outside knocking on the door and we're not letting him in. But he wants to come in. He wants to come to us. He says, I, I want to come. I want to eat with you in verse 20. And then he says in verse 21, now to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Every letter ends with that phrase, to the one who conquers. Most of the other cities, if you study, it's a really great study to do. If you study the seven churches of Revelation, they all had these different difficult people that they were dealing with. Maybe it was the the Jewish synagogue rulers, or maybe it was the Roman government, or maybe it was false teachers. In Ephesus chapter 2, verse 2, they were false apostles. In Smyrna chapter 2, verse 9, it was called the synagogue of Satan. Chapter 2, verse 15, in Pergamum, it was the Nicolaitans. Chapter 2, verse 20, in Thyatira, there was someone named Jezebel. Chapter 3, verse 9, in Philadelphia, again, the synagogue of Satan. So all of these other churches had these opponents, you know, that they were facing. And so Jesus said, well, the one who conquers, man, you, you, you've got to go toe-to-toe with these false teachers or, or with, with, with the persecution that you're facing from these, from these outsiders. The interesting thing here is that Laodicea is told, you need to conquer. There's no enemy. There's, 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 no, there's no one mentioned, that they, no false teacher, there's no false apostle, there's no Jewish leader, there's no Roman politician. You see, you'll never really experience growth in your Christian life until you understand that your biggest opponent in following Jesus is yourself. It's your own pride. And that's something that all of us have to come to grips with. And that's what we need to ultimately conquer. Yes, different adversaries and different opposition will come and go. I know a little bit about the story of this church, and I know that there has been opposition from the outside. I know there have been challenges on the inside even, but we all need to understand that the biggest challenge that all of us face is right here. But I love how Jesus says, I'm going to invite you in verse 21 to sit with me on my throne. In verse 20, he says, I'm knocking on the door. I want to come and sit with you. So Jesus comes right to where we are. He says, I want to sit with you. But then he says, I want you to sit with me. The highest place, the right hand of the Father 
How do you sit there? How do you get to the highest place? By taking the lowest place. By humbling yourself under the greatness of God. And then God reaches to you in your humility, in your sense of neediness, your sense of brokenness. And he, God, opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you hearing him today? I know I'm a visitor. I know I'm just kind of flying in and then flying out. But it's been my prayer. It's my prayer every Sunday that I preach. It's been my prayer particularly this Sunday that you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear my voice. That you wouldn't remember my name but that you would hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Do you have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to you today? Winston Churchill didn't like what he saw and destroyed the painting, an accurate painting of who he was. Are you allowing the Spirit of God to speak to you today to give you an accurate picture that you are, that you're proud that you're blind, but that you are loved and that there is hope and that you can change by the grace of God. Do you have ears what Jesus is saying to you today? Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words from your word, God, and that they would move from our ears directly to our hearts. And God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would humble us. God, I know that this is a community filled with people that love you, that earnestly desire that you would be glorified in this place and in this city and around the world. And so God, I pray that you would mercifully and graciously root out the pride that so easily grows and festers and develops in our life. God, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit, that you would use your people, that you would use family members and small group members and close Christian friends and the pastors and leaders of this church, Lord, to be able to lovingly speak truth, Lord, that we would be able to see and understand where pride may be growing in our lives, but God, that we wouldn't dwell there, that we would flee to the cross and that we would get our eyes on Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray all these things in his amazing name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand. Let's respond together. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Let's, let's allow this song to be a means by which we confess and acknowledge our own struggle with pride and let us get our eyes off of ourselves and on to our Savior who suffered and died on the cross.